going to begin this morning with a word of prayer as you find your way to your seat, and uh, then our choir will sing for us this morning, and then we'll join them in song, and uh, thanking the Lord this morning for the opportunity to be together, so let's ask Him to help us today. Lord, we are <clears throat> grateful to you for your love and your faithfulness to us. Uh, thank you for bringing us together this morning, those that are able to be here and, and join with one another. We're grateful that we can worship you and that we can praise you <clears throat> and that we can uh, speak to you in prayer and have faith that you will hear. And uh, we trust you for uh, delivering us in our daily lives and for keeping us from sin and from teaching us about our own lives and uh, allowing us to become more like you. And we trust you ultimately for our eternal deliverance. And we trust and we look forward to a day in which you make all things right and all things new. And we ask that you would guide and direct us today, that you would uh, teach us your way and your will in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bible this morning, if you would. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 15. And as you find your place there, if you would also have in hand your announcements and bulletin for today. Matthew chapter number 15. And as you find your place there, you'll notice just on the inside cover of your bulletin, you see some events that are coming up in our church and ministry. And see there this week, we don't put this in there every month, but just a reminder that about once a month we have a, a postcard outreach ministry where uh, some of you come and meet in the conference room for a little while and send out some handwritten cards to people that have recently moved into the area. We have a few of you this morning that have come to our church through that, um, and we're uh, glad for that, just a way to introduce ourselves to people in the community, and uh, that's meeting this Thursday, I believe it is, at 9 in the morning, and you're welcome to come and join that. I will warn you, typically, it is not a ladies-only ministry, but typically, it's a good number of our ladies that are retired that can be there, and um, it is more fun than I can handle in one uh, setting, but they have a good time when they come there, and that'll be this Thursday morning. So if you haven't come and been a part of that before, and you have the opportunity, uh, it's just a short time that they're gathered together and send out some of those notes to the community and inviting people and introducing them to our ministries. And you see next week, a teen activity that's been moved, there's a uh, uh, that was supposed to be this evening, but there's some sickness, and so uh, that's been moved to next week during the uh, evening classes. And then a note there about uh, junior camp, the early registration, that closes next week, um, just a little more than a week away, and it gives you the date there for our junior camp. And when our, te when our kids are going to the edge this year, and you can register online if you register by that uh, date of the 28th, I can't remember, I think you saved... $30 total to the cost of camp, and you just have to have a, a, a registration fee up front. You don't have to pay the whole thing just yet. And then you see some other events coming up <clears throat> later in the month of March and even down into uh, April, several things that we're uh, looking forward to in the next and uh, coming days. All right, if you would, take your Bible and look at Matthew chapter 15. Oh, uh, before I do that, uh, let me, uh, the first date up there on the top this evening our new adult Bible groups. You can look at there at the back of your bulletin, and it tells you a little bit about 
the four groups that we're going to have. These are going to run from February into the month of May. And you see the four uh, Bible adult Bible groups that we're going to be having on. These will be each Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. They run for about an hour, sometimes discussion or fellowship. You can hang around as long as you want till kids' ministry finishes around 6.30. And uh, so you see there, uh, we have offered a men's class, and you see a description of that. Our responsibility as men to uh, disciple others, and it uses the life of King David as uh, sort of a, as an example and how God can work in our lives as well. Uh, so we have men's class, a ladies' class. What's the uh, place of... Uh, ladies, how can we serve, not we, but you serve in a number of different ways uh, in our families and in our church as well. And you see there, stewarding life. So men's class for men, ladies class for ladies. The stewarding life class is for anyone that would like to come, be a part of that. You can attend as a couple or uh, as an individual, doesn't matter. Uh, but that is dealing with how do we handle the things that God gives us, whether it's our time, uh, our thoughts, our abilities, uh, health, finances, possessions, relationships, and how do we handle the influence that God gives us, and how do we use that for God's purpose, and you see there uh, what that follows. And you see at the bottom, uh, this is a unique class that eventually uh, I would love to see our church take on, even sort of as a ministry that just rotates to people, not just within our church, but into our community, uh, but if you think about it, I think in the last... Um, Three years, uh, I just myself personally have uh, been a part of about 30 different funerals in about the last three years, and many of them attached to our church, and uh, that is a significant amount in that amount of time. And uh, really what I see and think about that more than anything is just the number of people dealing with loss and hurt in their own lives. It could be your own personal loss of a, a spouse, a child, a parent. Uh, it could be uh, shared loss experience even within your family or whatever it may have been. Uh, but you see there the bottom group that we're having is called Grief Share. And uh, this is a program that's an organized program, but it's, it, it's a more relaxed form. Uh, it starts with kind of a lesson or a session each week. It gives a workbook that includes uh, kind of a, a journal and a Bible study that you walk through personally, individually. And then each week there's an opportunity to discuss with individuals or with uh, the group as we learn. You see some of the topics that are there. And uh, if that would be a help to you or a help to someone that you may know, whether they can be here tonight, uh, they're all kind of self-contained lessons. So um, you don't have to be a part of everyone to get it. Uh, if there's somebody that you know that has been dealing with loss as well, I think that's a significant thing in our world and in our day. And so uh, we'll be doing that for the next 13 weeks or so. And so pray about those. If you have not been involved in one of these before, I encourage you to, to be involved, get involved. Uh, sometimes when you enter a smaller setting like that, there may be more intimidating for certain people than others, uh, but they remain a fairly relaxed setting. There's no required, you don't have to stand on a chair and do a jumping jacks or anything too exciting like that. Uh, you can be as much as involved vocally as you'd like to be, but if not, uh, then that's fine as well. So if you haven't been a part of that, these are good ways to get to know people in our church congregation and then also to grow in just a little bit different way, a unique way, and uh, to have your life spoken into by a number of voices as well. So those will begin tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll meet here in the auditorium first uh, to kind of give us an idea of what rooms we need to use based on who's attending what classes. We'll be here in the auditorium for about 10 minutes. And then tonight we'll be breaking into those different groups just as a, 
uh, an introduction and kind of a meet and greet and a little bit of opportunity to be uh, together tonight as well. All right, look at Matthew 15, if you would. Matthew 15, a short passage today and uh, a short section of Scripture compared to what we've been covering, about half chapters at once. Uh, today, just a few verses, and you'll see there Matthew 15, <clears throat> verse number 21. And we'll read there in just a moment. And just by um, warning, if you feel like I am yelling or screaming at you, it is not intentional. Uh, like many of our people even uh, this morning that have had this uh, head congestion and different things, I can't hear very well out of either ear. I feel like I have recovered and am better Minus my hearing. And so if you feel like I am intimidatingly yelling at you today, somebody can just wave your hand and just kind of point to your ears that I'm causing great pain. I, I think I've got it kind of managed somewhere in the middle. Uh, but if for some reason I get extremely loud, I promise I'm not angry. If you would, look at verse number uh, 21 uh, of Matthew 15. It says in verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away. For she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. And yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Lord, help us as we enter into a passage this morning that, um, though brief, can be a little odd in our minds and in our ears. A little confusing even as we compare it to what we know of your uh, nature and your character. And so as we handle your word, help us to handle it carefully, and may we seek you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> as you look again to Matthew 15 this morning, and uh, the text that we just read is a little unusual, isn't it? You can be honest. It's not a trick passage. Uh, as I read it, sometimes I feel like I'm everyone else. I think I'm, I'm learning and I feel like everybody else is, oh, no, 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 we already knew that, of course. And as we read this passage, in fact, I didn't say anything about the passage at all when we read it. We just read it and then just let it sit in our hearts for a few minutes this morning as Veronica sang. Hopefully it didn't distract you from the song. But if you let the passage sink in for a moment, in just a very short paraphrase, Jesus goes to a land that is not full of Jewish people. And a woman who is not a Jew comes to Jesus and says, My daughter is sick. She is 
sorely oppressed, vexed by a demon, will you heal her? And Jesus doesn't answer. He doesn't say a word to her. He ignores her. And she asks enough times that the disciples then tell Jesus, please send her away. And some think that maybe they're saying, just heal her, give her what she wants, send her away full so that she will leave us alone. She's coming after us. And Jesus' answer to them is, I didn't come for her. I came for the lost sheep, the people of the house of Israel. I came for the Jews. And then she continually says so she came and she worshipped him. And then her, his response, as if his silence and then his statement, his difficulty, were not enough. If you think, well, maybe we're just misinterpreting here how Jesus feels or what he's trying to communicate. He says to her, should I take from a children's table and give food to dogs? And he says that looking at her. And if we are honest this morning, when we read that passage, it sits in an odd place in our heart, doesn't it? Because we know we believe Jesus is perfect. We believe that he is kind. We believe that he is holy, that he is loving. And yet we read that he ignored a woman spoke in a difficult way about her or about the situation, and then even spoke directly to her in a way that we would deem, it's, it's kind of offensive. Now we know that Jesus is not against healing people that are not Jews. In fact, it's happened quite often so far in his ministry. And yet, here he is speaking, saying, I can't do this because she's not a Jew. So what is he teaching to us today? Let it sit for, uh, in us for a moment. Let it kind of stir up in us the emotions, however the Lord leads and what the Spirit guides. But I want us to think that you cannot, when you come to Matthew 15, verse 21, you cannot forget Matthew 1 through verse 15, chapter 15, verse 20. You, you can't forget the first 15 and a half chapters in which Matthew has been clearly communicating to us that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the Savior, He's the Lord of all, that He has come not just for the Jews, not just for religious people, not just for those that think they are right and spiritual with God, but that He has come for all, that He says the meek inherit the earth, that the kingdom of God is for those that humble themselves, that the first will be last and the last will be elevated to be first. He has clearly taught that. He's already healed a Roman centurion's uh, uh, servant, and we, we saw that he's not against people that are not Jews. He's gathered, there's been descriptions of the people that are following him and the lands that they've come from. So you can't ignore what has already happened. In the Bible, he's told us who Jesus is and what he's like. You know, I think about Christendom today. Christianity today tells you, come to God because you'll get a breakthrough. If you come to Jesus, you'll get a breakthrough in your career and in your family and in your life and in your finances and in your physical nature, in your health. You'll get all these breakthroughs if you come to Jesus. Jesus can do any of those things that he wants. And yet we say, come to Jesus. If you're sick, you'll be healed. If you're empty and feeling meaningless, you'll be filled up. If life has not worked well for you, there's hope in Jesus. But that message falls short of what the gospel really teaches. You think about these things. The Bible doesn't say come to Jesus because your life is physically not what you want it to be. He says come to Jesus because you're sinful people standing before a holy God 
and He is your only hope. God did not come to save our careers. Jesus didn't walk this earth in human form just to deal with our physical sickness. Jesus came to save us something from something greater than all of those things. That is the consequence and the eternal judgment of our sin, namely from the wrath of God. Jesus came to save us from God's wrath. That has not changed. Jesus came to the Jews who were a nation that longed for deliverance. They wanted a king to free them from their captor in Rome. But they did not expect that he would arrive as a humble child. Kings are supposed to have great and magnificent titles known by all. But this boy was named Jesus. And it seemed that for 30 years no one could find him. Kings have parades and parties to coronate them. But Jesus was baptized in muddy waters. Armies fight for their kings against their enemies, but he spent 40 days being tempted by Satan himself. Kings give speeches about promises of prosperity, but Jesus says to his people, the first shall be last, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. The meek inherit the kingdom of God. Kings are praised and worshipped for titles, but Jesus is worshipped for his deity over all things, and in this story even over demons. And so I want you to think for a moment, as you look to this story, I want you to think about the incredible thing about this story, that if you're honest, maybe you're a little different than me, but if if you're like me this morning, the incredible thing about the seven or eight verses that we just read is that we probably ignored the most magnificent and incredible part of the entire thing. That there was a, a young woman oppressed and possessed probably by a demon power, and Jesus, from distance, casts it out of her. Now, I want you to think for a moment. For the last few minutes, has that been what you've been focused on thinking about? It's probably not. You've probably been thinking about his answer to her and how he got to that place and position. At least when I was reading this. It, there were several times in study where I, I, I went through a, an hour of study and realized I have not even thought about the fact that Jesus works a great miracle on behalf of this woman and on behalf of her daughter. It's an amazing miracle. Why is it that our eyes and minds are drawn to us? And I don't think it's the wrong thing. I think you think about the fact that in the seven verses that we read, it's really a very small portion of it. I think Matthew's drawing our attention to something else. But before we Begin. there's a baseline to the story. There's this overarching premise that I don't think that we, can, we can't ignore it. And so this morning, rather than break apart the passage into an outline and a dissertation and all the doctrine, I just want to kind of sit in the passage for a moment together and let ourselves even feel uncomfortable if we have to. But to do that, I want us to think about a few things. Jesus comes to a place, it says in verse 21, it says it's a place called Tyre and Sidon. And to be honest, I think if you, if you read and underline that, I think that is a key, a principal key to unlocking the rest of this passage. It says, it came from Tyre and Sidon. We'll discuss what that means in just a moment. His intent was for no one to really know that he was there. Mark chapter 7 gives us a parallel account of this. And actually, most of the account covers it in duplicity. It mostly just gives us the same facts. The only different things that Mark 7 tells us is that the woman was actually 
a Greek. She was a Syrophoenician, was her nationality. Matthew calls her a Canaanite. We'll explain why in a moment. She's Greek by her nationality or by her title, by her person type. She's Syrophoenician. And the other thing that it tells us is that Jesus went to this area, and it says he goes into a house, and he did not want it to be known that he was there for other people. So that's the only thing that Mark really tells us any different. It tells us the woman's nationality, and it tells us that Jesus had gone to this area to be alone. You say, well, why is he doing that? Well, he just did it a few, uh, at the beginning of the last chapter, he kind of leaves and goes away into a mountain to pray, and he can't get alone because people know that he's there and they follow him. So it only makes sense that Jesus is going to travel, you'll see in a moment, somewhere between 30 and 45 miles he travels out of the way to a land where there's really not very many Hebrew or Jewish people at all. He's trying to be by himself. You say, well, why would he go there? You can see, on the, if you look at the front cover, you can't really see the picture very well. That's a picture of the city of Tyre. It looks like a, a resort destination. It's a beautiful area of coastline. So it could be that Jesus just simply wants to get away for a few days, yet he knows what's coming. He goes there to be alone, and when he gets there, this Canaanite woman has come to Jesus, and when he visits her area, she comes to him with this desperate problem, a daughter with a demon, an unclean spirit. We're not told how she got it why she got it, or even what symptoms she was manifesting. But I I jotted down a few others. There's other places in the New Testament where it says that someone oppressed by a demon, there's one man that becomes blind by it. Another man becomes mute and cannot talk. Another man becomes deaf and cannot hear. Another lady is bent over forward to where she cannot stand up straight. Now, there's other descriptions because a few of us are starting to get a little worried. If it I can't see as well, I can't hear as well, I can't speak as well, and I can't stand up straight and I'm sore all the time. No, that does not mean that you are demon-oppressed. There's other places in Scripture where it goes on and explains other things. Another man throws himself into fire in fits. Into a fi- he threw himself into fire. Another man, the demoniac, he slashed himself of the gatherings. He screamed. He cut himself. He lived naked in a graveyard. But there's really no other inclination about what this girl's problem is other than that she is oppressed by a demon, and that is a significant thing. You study the rest of the New Testament, it's not small. And and it's enough that she comes to Jesus just burdened about this, and she asks him for help. And so you have this brief conversation in which Jesus at first seems to put off her request, maybe testing her faith is what we think in some way sometimes, but she persists. And eventually he relents and he heals her her daughter. And a lot of times when we read this passage, we may take a pragmatic approach to this faith of the woman, the healing. Jesus says she had great faith. Her problem is solved. And so we may assume things like, hey, number one, no problem is too big for God. Number two, when God seems like he's not answering, just keep asking. And number three, God rewards persistent prayer. Let's bow our heads, close our Bible, and go home. But I think that the passage is saying more than just have faith, keep praying. There's more than that. And I want you to think, those are not terrible things, and we're going to apply those in just a few minutes. But I think that we do the passage injustice, and I think that we do ourselves harm when we skip over and ignore things that make us uncomfortable. Because if you just read the first verse, woman had a daughter who was sick and oppressed, Read the last verse. Jesus healed her and said she had great faith. That seems like a good day. But Jesus sat in silence. 
he at first said he could not heal her because of her nationality. And then he goes even further and gives a description that could seem almost offensive. And so let's look at the text and get to know Christ personally. I think dwelling on it more will be helpful for us than categorizing it or outlining it this morning. And so I want you to think about this as we start the passage. I want you to think about one of the most uniting factors of reading Scripture for us and how it can be difficult. Uh, what can make a passage like this more difficult than anything else is, first, that you cannot hear Jesus, and second, that you cannot see Him. All right? W- wouldn't you understand? You say, how, how, what do you mean? Have you ever texted someone something in a normal spirit? You've sent an email, and it has been, you have meant no ill. Like you have, it was good thoughts when you were texting it or sending it. And the response that you get back from them lets you know they did not receive it in the way that you said it. And all of a sudden, someone's bothered, someone's offended. It happens quite often, doesn't it? When you cannot hear and you cannot see, we are limited in what we can perceive in communication. So we can admit and acknowledge that God's word is perfect and whole, yes, it is flawless and it is inerrant. However, we are not. We are sinful and we are limited. And so when we read this and we cannot hear Jesus' tone and we cannot see his demeanor, there's a lot of ways that you could read this and walk through it. For instance, how would the passage change if Jesus is sitting and this Canaanite woman comes and he knows the hearts of his disciples that they have already had big issues with Samaritans and with people that are not like them as Jews. And the woman comes asking for help, and Jesus sits almost smirking at his disciples. Like, should I help her? And then she comes and she says, please help me, my daughter. And, and it sets in in the disciples, and the disciples even say, please help her. She is having an awful experience in time, and she's coming after us. We can't stop hearing her, please, Lord, please heal her. And he says, I didn't come for the people that weren't of the house of Israel. And he says it looking to them, and it's almost setting in in their hearts and lives. And he's teaching them a lesson. And then you have that fierce kind of offensive statement at the end. And he turns, what if he turns and he looks at his disciples and he's saying it to them? And he says, should I take from the children and feed to the dogs, which is what the Jews often called Gentiles and specifically Samaritans and certain people that were of Canaanite descendants? Should I, should I do this? So our perception changes by what we hear. We're not given that in Scripture. So we can go by what we know. And here's some things you have it there marked in your notes. What can we know as we walk through the passage? Well, number one, you can think about where. Where did this take place? It says there in the cities of Tyre and Sidon. I'll give you a little map that I'm going to put on the screen. Now, most likely you, you cannot read or see that up in detail. But you see the big, bold letters at the top, Sidon and Tyre. So this is a kind of a region. You think about Virginia, you think of like the eastern shore. Like no real city stands out in your mind. It's just a large section of coast that you can go. You can vacation there, you know, whatever you may do. When you would say the cities of Tyre and Sidon, it would cover kind of this whole section of coast. It's about a 30, 40 mile section of coast between 
these two cities. It's a very historied area. This 2,000 years of history before Jesus in these two cities. You go back, their names changed throughout time. There's Their foundings, like I said, were two, two millennia before Jesus was born. Sidon, it is thought, was named eventually after the firstborn son of Canaan. Jacob spoke about uh, the area as the northern boundary of Zebulun. So all the way back to Abraham and Jacob and his sons. They're speaking of this area of the world. Joshua spoke about it as part of the promised land. And it was included in the land that was given to the tribe of Asher. And so you can kind of see that there. In fact, I'll, well, I'll go back. You can kind of see that there. It's the northernmost part of the promised land that God gave to Israel. It's given to the tribe of Asher, this area is. But here's something interesting. Remember when Israel goes in and they conquest over the land that God has promised them? They drive out the enemies of God that had rejected him. They drive them away and they inherit and occupy the land. That never happened in these two cities. Never happened in this region. The tribe of Asher never went there. They never fought. They never battled. They never occupied. They never even influenced. They never bothered with going that far north, even though God had promised it to them. So what do you have? When Jesus goes to this, he's not just going to two random cities. There are no Jews there, relatively speaking, no Jews. There is no Jewish influence. It is part of God's promised land for Israel, but Israel has never had it. They've never occupied it. And this woman comes from, it says that she's from this area, out of this coast. And so in their minds, for the Hebrew mind, it was a mark of failing. This was part of the land that God had promised that they had never been able to take. And so in the Jewish mind, when they looked at people living in this region, their thought was one of bitterness. That belongs to us. It was one of failure. We never occupied like we should. And when they looked at this area, their ultimate thought of these people, you shouldn't be there. And so that's the area that Jesus goes. And he doesn't just stumble into this area. From where he just was, down on the Sea of Galilee, this gives you a little bit of a map of kind of the trip. You see there he leaves the Sea of Galilee. He leaves that area, heads up to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. He's going out of his way. In fact, this is the only places in the gospel that Jesus is recorded to have left at that point in history the natural boundaries of the land of Israel. It's the only time he really leaves the land of Israel. So he leaves, but he leaves with a purpose. And I think that we're going to see why that is in a moment. So he heads up into an area that is not Hebrew or Jewish influence, that is a kind of a scourge in their mind, and they think ill <clears throat> toward the people that live there. Matthew calls her a Canaanite. Now, Mark says she's Greek or Syrophoenician, so which one is it? Matthew's saying she's of the people that we never drove out of the land of God that we were supposed to inherit. Mark is telling us that by her nationality, she has Greek influence. You see, Tyre and Sidon were heavily influenced by Greek culture for about the five to six centuries before Jesus was born. In fact, Homer writes in the Iliad and the Odyssey both of both of these cities. He mentions them something like 16 or 17 times. It's interesting that the city of Tyre was actually originally an island. It was a small little island just off the coast. You could almost swim or walk there on certain times or tides. And Alexander the Great, the great Greek emperor, comes and he said, well, what is this history? We're getting there. Just trust me. 
So Alexander the Great comes to Tyre. It's a little island. Sidon surrenders as soon as Alexander comes and says, take what you want, we'll pay tribute. And actually, they look very favorably on Sidon. Tyre says, sure, we'll surrender, but you can't get to us anyway, so you're not going to get anything from us. So Alexander decides, I'm going to conquer you. So he sieges the city. He doesn't let anything get to the little island. And he decides it's actually an incredible feat at that day. He takes wood and dirt and stones from all around the mainland, and he builds a land bridge to the island. And he walks over and knocks on their door and says, I'm here and I would like to conquer you. And then they give up. In fact, today, Tyre is not an island. That land bridge that he built out there has become a peninsula. And it's pretty amazing. What used to be an island is now a peninsula. And a person did that. It turned it into it. So there's a lot of Greek history in this area. But what you're sensing and feeling, not much Jewish history. No Jewish history. No influence of the people of God in this area. Yet, this is where Jesus goes. And so that's not going to change. So knowing that, Sidon had enjoyed... When Rome comes to power, Sidon enjoys a lot of benefits that Israel didn't. This particular region, they had their own senate, they had their own currency. Rome really respected them and kind of left them alone. So not only do the Jews look at it as our failure and our problem and our issue, they also look at it as it's not fair, they get things that we don't. And so then I want you to notice the second thing. You think about the region. But then notice number two and number three. What did Jesus know and what did Jesus plan to do? Who is, in other words, who is Jesus? What does Jesus know? And what was the ultimate result? Well, we know that Jesus is the God of the universe. Even as incarnate man, he has the capacity to know the hearts of men. We already studied back, remember Matthew 9, where the scribes come and they have ill intent. Eventually they want to kill Jesus. And the Bible says in Matthew 9 that Jesus knew their thoughts and he responded a certain way. There's other places, four or five other times in Matthew, where Matthew tells us Jesus knew their heart, Jesus knew their thoughts, Jesus knew their mind. In Matthew 22, it says that he perceived the wickedness that was inside of men. He knows what's inside of men. Mark, Luke, and John, all three other Gospels, give different accounts where Jesus was interacting with someone, and he knew their heart, he knew their mind, and he knew their life. That does not change. So when you read the passage, verse 21 through 28, You must know that Jesus knows this woman's mind and heart. And he also knows his disciples. Jesus is not testing her to figure out if she has faith. He absolutely knows that she has faith. But then notice the end result. What is Jesus planning to do? The Gospels explain to us in several places that Jesus knew ahead of time the things they would do. He did not set apart that part of his deity, his sovereignty. He knew what was coming. He knew the future. He knew how he was going to respond to those things. Think about it in John chapter 6 when it tells us of the feeding of the 5,000. Philip comes to Jesus and he says, how are we going to feed all these people? Jesus asks Philip a question. He says, where are we going to get bread? Where, how are we going to feed all these people? But remember what it says in John 6, 6. It says, Jesus asked Philip this, knowing in himself what he would do. That doesn't change about this passage either. So think, just let it settle for a moment. You have in this passage Jesus going to an area of the world that the Jews hated. And who is he taking there? All of his Jewish disciples. You have him speaking to a woman who has great faith. Jesus already knows her heart. 
You have Jesus healing the woman's daughter at the end. Jesus already knows what he's going to do. So what you actually have in this conversation is not Jesus testing the woman's faith to see if she has it. He already knows. What you have is not Jesus testing her faith to make her earn the healing of her daughter. He already knows he's going to do that. What is the purpose of this conversation that he gives? I think as you look at it, it's remarkable that here you have a Gentile woman with no access to Jewish worship or to the God that they worshiped, the God of Israel. None of them would have seen this woman coming And yet Jesus says to her, so when we read the passage, we're shocked by his reaction, we're shocked by Jesus' silence, and we're shocked by his eventual response. We remember that these things are true. Jesus knows her heart. He knows what he's going to do. So what is he teaching? You have this woman who comes and she humbly worships before him. And then Jesus says of this woman something he said of no one else in his entire ministry. He says of the Roman centurion, he says, I haven't found this as great a faith as this in all of Israel. But he never says of anyone else in his ministry, this person has great faith. He, he declares her a champion of faith. And it comes from an unexpected place, doesn't it? You think about certain sporting events, you know, and there's certain sports that as Americans, we, we tend to, as a society, we're pretty good at. There's other sports that we are not good at. And, and, you know, certain sports that we invented, and that's why we're good at them. There's not like a World Cup of, I say football, I mean actual, like, throw the football, you know, whatever. There's not like a World Cup of football. We're like the only ones that would compete. And so how embarrassing would it be if we're going to have a World Cup of football, the game that all the best players in the world are from this country, and we go off and we go in this competition with these other countries, and we lose. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. It's like the champion of football came from the place that doesn't even play it and doesn't even know anything about it. They didn't invent it. Remember a few years ago, our Olympic basketball team lost. It was one of the first times we had never won the gold medal in that sense, and it was kind of embarrassing because it's like, this is one of our sports. It's like, you know, we're supposed to be really good at this. And the champion came from an unexpected place, didn't it? Well, here Jesus is saying of a woman that has no religious background in the real true God, that has no Jewish influence, that has no Hebrew religiousness to her life, and yet Jesus says of her, she is a champion of faith. And it comes from this unexpected place. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that he has come to save all. And when you read the passage in this way, notice the woman is never offended by Jesus. In fact, she kind of flips Jesus' metaphor back on its head. You remember a few verses earlier, you say, well, he called her a dog. I couldn't, I'm not going to get into it because it's not worth our argument for time. I think Greek had two words for dogs. One was sort of the mangy mongrels that roamed the streets. The other was sort of like, a pet, like, kept in a certain way, and he used a certain term. He used the more endearing term. You're like, well, I'll still be offended if he's a dog. Well, two verses earlier, he called the people of Israel sheep, lambs. And while that may be more noble to you, if we brought a dog in and we brought a sheep in that had both been wandering astray, you really don't want to be compared to either one. Jesus is not trying to be offensive when he says this. He's giving the picture, and he is telling his people, yes, I have come to the Jews first to fulfill the prophecy that I would be of God's chosen people, but I have not come to the Jew 
only. And if you're sitting in this room this morning and you are a Christian, it is a high likelihood that you should be very grateful for that fact. I don't know at the moment of anyone in here who is Jewish by, you may have some Jewish background in your family, but I don't know anyone who is fully part of the chosen people of God, if you look at it in that way, as Jews. He came to save all. We should be grateful for that. And so as he speaks to these disciples, I want you to notice a few things. Notice in verse 23. She comes and says, O Lord, he says, she says, have mercy on me. Thou son of David. She, she admits two things here. She says, Lord, meaning master. It could be a form of deity or just respect. But then she says, thou son of David, which was a title that the Jews would use for those of royalty, the kingship, but eventually whittled down. It was a term of endearment to the coming Messiah. He's going to be a son of David. She knows about him. In fact, other places in Scripture have already told us that people from Tyre and Sidon were among the multitudes that, were, that followed Jesus, that he worked miracles. They have gone back to their home, and she has heard of him. And she knows, I don't know, I don't know a whole lot about this Jewish God, but this must be this Messiah that they speak of. So she says, have mercy on me, son of David. Notice, he answered her not a word. It says that he did not answer. It does not say that he did not hear. And his disciples came and besought him. So his disciples come and speak to him. And notice in verse 24, first, he answers who? He answers the disciples. So who do we think that he's trying to teach? He's trying to teach the disciples. She asks him over and over and over again, and he doesn't respond. They ask him, Lord, just do this. And he immediately responds. I didn't come but for the, unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's not saying he came only. We'll see that in a moment. Then she came, notice her next response. Then she came and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And then she reverses it, truth. But even the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. If, if you could argue in the first little section of this passage, well, she didn't think about him like the Messiah. She didn't really mean son of David. It's very difficult to ignore the last statement, she says. He says, I'm the Messiah. Come to give the gospel first, starting with the Jew, the lost house, the people of God. And she says, why would I take from the children and then first give to the dogs, to the others that have need? And her response is, Lord, even the crumbs. Your mercy falls on even those that are surrounding. What is she expressing that she understands and knows? that all those around Israel will be blessed by the one that comes from Israel. She understands the world is going to be blessed by this Messiah. She declares the gospel, in essence. She may not realize it, and she may not understand it, but she completely shows dependence on him, worships him. She calls him son of David. She worships him, and she says, I know that we can be blessed regardless of what family I am from. She's declaring the gospel. And Jesus' response to her is, you have great faith. And so let's finish this morning by some application. Some would try to soften the blow of his words. But I want you to think, she, she would not have come to any other Jewish rabbi. She knew Jesus was merciful. 
No one else would have even given her the time of day. Jesus had come to where she lives. And he did not forsake. He did not ignore. He will not abuse even an ounce of her faith. Because it is in, if it is in Christ, it is never misplaced. I want you to think about this. Jesus, here's how Jesus was perceived. If you just read this story, what did Jesus do? He ignored her. He made things difficult for her. And ultimately, he, the way it seemed that he was expressing, he was against her. He didn't like her. That's the way that Jesus is perceived. And I want you to think in your own life for a moment, because we can relate this to our own life and the faith that we have in different circumstances. Are there not moments where even as Christians, we feel like God ignores us? We feel like we pray and he is silent. Where we say, Lord, Master, Messiah, Son of David, please have mercy. And it seems like all is quiet. We perceive that he is ignoring us. Maybe there's other moments in life where we seems like he's not ignoring us, but he's being difficult. Where he says to us, I didn't, I didn't come for this. I'm not going to fix this. I'm not going to take care of this for you. And it seems like Jesus is purposely making our lives difficult. He is not rescuing us like we desire him. He's not fixing what we want him to fix. And so we perceive that he ignores us. We perceive that he is difficult. And sometimes we even perceive that he is against us, <laughs> that he does not like us, that he has brought things into our lives to hurt and to harm us in, in an offensive way as it was even could have been perceived by the woman. And in fact, maybe the disciples even perceived it the way that our hearts did. Whoa, what in the world is Jesus? merciful one is like biting back at the... But is any of that true? No. He knew our heart. And he knew what he would do. But what he does is he draws, he uses the circumstance to draw into the light a display of the faith that he knew was inside her heart. And there are moments in life where Jesus brings into us moments that we feel ignored, we feel difficult, and we feel he is against us, but he is not. He is bringing into display the faith that he knows is in our hearts. Think about her response. She requests first, and he is silent. What does she do next? She worships when he is silent. Then he gets difficult. She gets difficult to or he gets difficult toward her. And how does she respond again? She pleads, Lord, help me. Then he seems almost offensive toward her, and she says, Look, I can't go anywhere else because I know only you have the answer. And shouldn't that be an example for our lives? We seem to want to worship God when He has fixed our issues. And yet here she is worshiping God when He is silent. We tend to plead and speak kindly to God when we have a great need, and then when He doesn't fix it, we get silent toward Him. And yet in her persistence, she continually comes acknowledging, I have nowhere else to go. What do our lives display? when we have issues and problems as Christians? 
We may ask God once. We may pray a couple times. We may go to church. We may try to read a portion of Scripture and do the spiritual thing. But then He's silent, and so where do we go? We leave. We walk away until the next time we might have a need. And we do not worship. And then in moments of life, when we do worship, and it seems that God rewards our worship with difficulty, we walk away. And we don't plead. I'm not sure where you are in life this morning. But I do know that we can learn from this woman's faith and from Jesus' response. Notice, we won't comment on we'll just read them. Number one, great faith is prompted by a recognition of a great need. You may have a need this morning. If you're not a Christian, you have a need, whether you understand it or not. You have a need for a Savior. You have a need to be freed from the penalty of your sin. You stand judged before the wrath of God and you will find nothing else but a sentence of guilty. And only Jesus can save you. Same is true for us as Christians this morning. Our spiritual need. You may be saved, but you feel unfulfilled. You're unsatisfied. You feel like life is meaningless and empty. You'll find it nowhere else but Jesus. Great faith is prompted by a recognition of a great need. Great faith is re requires knowing who can fill that need. She didn't know a whole lot about Jesus, I'm convinced. But she knew that only He could save. Great faith requires persistent trust. Over and over again. Because God does not work on our timeline or in our way. And then notice the last. Great faith does not require our own worthiness. Notice, when does she turn to the woman and say, great is thy faith? When she stands and recognizes before Jesus, Lord, I understand. I'm not a chosen one of Israel. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a scribe. I'm not a Pharisee. I've never been to Jerusalem and offered a sacrifice. I've never, never memorized the Talmud. I've never studied the Torah. I've never made a pilgrimage. I've never participated in a Passover. I've never sat in a Jewish synagogue. I've never learned from a religious people. I've never learned any of those things. But I just want your mercy. <laughs> and he says, oh, your faith is so great. And this morning, you may think that you're never going to be a person of great faith because you don't have all the other stuff. Because you've never studied or learned or done or because there's something in your past that limits you you think from being close to God here's a woman in an area which all the other Jews said they don't belong and Jesus says to her you are welcome and whether you're a Christian this morning or you're not a Christian Jesus says to us all you are welcome here and he uses this woman's faith to teach his apostles. I'll give you a teaser for next week. Can we put the lesson thing back up there? I'm going to go to that little map thing real quick. And we'll close with this. Why would he do this for his disciples? Why would he do this at this time? We're going to close with this. Jesus goes 50 miles out of his way to meet a woman who's not a Jew in front of his disciples who are Jews to argue with her about not being a Jew to then say she has greater faith than anybody he has seen and commend her faith and accept her 
and heal this woman's daughter and work this great miracle. And he does it all right in front of the apostles and the disciples. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? I don't know if you can really see this or not, but up at the top, see the little man that says Capernaum, up at the top of the Sea of Galilee, that area that he's in was 5,000 men and then all these women and children that came with him and he fed them all with this miracle. Remember who he used? The disciples. He passed out the bread and they're so excited. They're going to be a part of this miracle. We're feeding this. And remember what the Jews wanted to do when he was done? It says they tried to take him by force and make him their king. It was Jewish people. Jesus in the next passage is about to do the exact same miracle again. But he's not going to do it in Capernaum. And he's not going to do it with Jews. He leaves Tyre and Sidon. He goes seemingly far west through Caesarea Philippi. He comes down through the area of Decapolis, which was ten cities in the borders of Israel, but primarily Gentile people. And he goes to the Sea of Galilee through this region of Decapolis, and he sits down with 4,000 more men and all their women and their wives and children. And he sits down with them, and he does the same miracle with Gentiles. And he does it the same way. He gives his, this bread to his disciples. And they turn. And can you imagine their face when they turn and they do not see any longer Jews and countrymen, but they see Gentiles. And they're thinking, Lord, they're not going to believe in you. These people don't have faith. They don't know the one true God. They don't believe in Jehovah. They've never sacrificed to anything or anyone other than themselves. They've never been to Jerusalem. They know nothing of our religion. And Jesus says, remember the woman in Tyre and Sidon? Remember her great faith. And he sends his disciples out, and they fully expect now others to believe. I want to ask you as we close, who in your life do you have no expectation that they would ever, by faith, come to Christ? The disciples definitely had people in their mind that they thought they'll never believe. This woman's probably one of them. But then multitudes came. I want you to think who in your life, whether it's somebody you're thinking of personally by name or somebody by influence, somebody at work, a people group, a certain mind, people that have a certain mindset, people that have a certain lifestyle, and you think, they're never going to trust in Christ. Jesus' message to you this morning is, oh yes, they will. And it is great faith that brings them. Let's close. Father, thank you for your mercy. You are good and holy, righteous God. We thank you for your love. Thank you that this morning we can trust you and that by faith, not by our worthiness, not by our religiousness, not by our spirituality, but by your Son we can stand in your presence and worship and praise your name. Help us to first see you for who you are, the Messiah, the Savior, the only one that can help us. Help us see ourselves for who we are, desperate and in great need. And help us to see all those around us, the multitudes, people that are lost without you, in need of a Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you would. We'll sing the song we sang a few minutes ago as a verse of invitation. At your seat, whether you're in a moment or at this altar, whether you're in a moment of God is silent toward me. God is being difficult toward me. God is against me.
just keep coming. Our perception is not reality. And just trust. Or whether you're looking out at someone in your life and say they'll never believe. And Jesus says, yes, they will. Let's ask him to help this morning. All I ever want to be is who. Amen. We're going to be dismissed in a word of prayer. I hope that you'll be back this evening. Maybe this morning God's laid somebody on your heart and you think that they won't, they just won't believe. The Lord says faith can come from unexpected places. And uh, we trust him. Maybe you're in a place this morning that Jesus' compassion has seemed delayed. By faith we trust. And we thank him. We thank him for that. I hope you'll be back tonight. All the adult groups will meet in here for just a few moments. And then uh, tonight, just sort of an introductory evening uh, into what each class is going to be and a time to meet others and, and uh, spend some time in, in prayer and study together this evening. I hope you'll be back at 5 o'clock for each of those. Uh, Glenn Gooding, would you close in prayer and we'll be dismissed.